Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft just made a big announcement that many people saw coming. He's running for governor in 2024. But before he hits the campaign trail in earnest, he still has a lot of things on his plate as Missouri Secretary of State. And that includes what to do with rules put forward by Attorney General Andrew Bailey that substantially restrict gender-affirming care. Ashcroft joins us on the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about many issues confronting the legislature and the state. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, in North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. we got to find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't want to leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in Jefferson City, she covers state politics and state government for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us in studio in St. Louis, he is Missouri Secretary of State and an official candidate for governor in 2024. Jay Ashcroft. Now, this is going to be 90% policy, Good. and I want to make that clear, but I do want to acknowledge the reality that you are a gubernatorial contender now. Not really a surprise. It seems when you decided not to run for Senate, that was a dead giveaway you were going to run for governor. It, it, is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, I looked at Washington, D.C. I looked at having to raise my kids in D.C. or being away from my kids all the time. I didn't want to do that. And frankly, I think it's very difficult to go to D.C. in the legislature and get things done. Uh, I don't want to be the the typical politician that uh, fixes the blame. I want to be the engineer that fixes the problem. I think you can do that in Missouri as governor far better than you can in the U.S. Congress. How do you prevent like the next year and a half from being just a bloodbath and being about issues like we're going to talk about in a few minutes? You can't. I can't. Um, uh, One of the things that I think everybody has to learn in life is that you can't control what other people do, what other people say. Uh, I'm just going to focus on what I think is best for the state of Missouri. I frankly am going to politely ignore uh, other people that are involved in the race and just talk about what I think is best for the state, uh, talk about what I want to do. And I think we'd all be better off if that's the way the race is handled. But that's up to other people. So you're not going to respond to Crystal Quaid basically calling you a Nepo baby last week. God bless her. <laughs> Anyways, we have a we we're gonna, we will talk much more about politics in in the weeks and months ahead. But um, I, there was a very important thing that happened yesterday, and that is Attorney General Andrew Bailey promulgated a set of rules that restrict. Things like puberty blockers, hormonal therapy, and gender reassignment surgeries. Um, what was notable to me, though, from reading it is 
It doesn't seem like it's directed just toward minors. It's directed toward everybody. And you actually have a role in this process, and I want you to explain what your role is and what you what might happen next, basically. Uh, administrative rules are under the uh, Secretary of State's office, so any agent, state agency, uh, department, constitutional official that's filing a, an administrative rule, they'll file it with our office. Uh, I have a duty with emergency rules. With normal rules, my duty is just to accept them and publish them. I'm not saying whether they're good or bad. I'm just printing them. Uh, with emergency rules, I have a little bit more of a responsibility to decide whether they are proper to be published, but I don't have a whole lot of statutory guidelines for what that means. So I think historically what that means is we look to the factors that are required in the statute. Do they say that it's an emergency? Do they say why it's an emergency? Have they said that they're doing the, uh, the best way to do it so it was the least inf uh, curtailing of people's rights? Do they say that they followed the protecting constitutional rights for at the state level and the federal level, those sorts of things? Uh, we'll just look to make sure that they did those things, and if they do those, it'll get, end up getting published. Some have suggested that Bailey's rules do not reach the standard of being an emergency and should go through the same process as the library content rules that we discussed on the last Politically Speaking. What do you say to that? Um, I think that it's quite possible that there will be litigation uh, about a rule of this magnitude and a rule that people have such different views on. Uh, but under the statute and under what I'm required to do as Secretary of State, I'm going to look at if the agency, in this case the attorney general, uh, claimed things that are necessary under the statute. Uh, I've read through it once. It looked like he did that. I'm going to read through it a couple more times because we have to have that final decision by Tuesday. Now, it's one thing about whether you can do anything about this. It's another thing about like whether you think this policy is good or not. And if this affects everybody, because let, let's just I'm, let's just for full disclosure for our listeners. I talked with you eight days ago. You told me that you did not like the Senate bill that grandfathered minors that were going through gender affirming care. Of course, care. if and, it's and wrong, it's yeah. wrong. Yeah. And if you, it's if it's okay, we shouldn't be push putting a bill on it. A, it's not okay. But if we're really concerned with protecting kids, we shouldn't allow it to continue and there shouldn't be a sunset. The data doesn't show that it's actually helpful for kids. We have individuals that instead of just affirming what they're saying, we should love them and be their friends and find out what they're going through and help them to get through that instead of just saying, what. look, your greatest enemies will affirm you when you're making a fool of yourself. Your friends are the ones that will step up and say, hey, you're better than this. I'm going to require you to be better than that. But what you told me after you basically told me that is you do not want a ban for people that are over 18 years old. This looks like a de facto ban for everybody, and I'd, I'd like you to talk about about that. Let me be very careful. I don't think anyone should do this personally. But in the role of government, I don't think it's government's role to tell adults, generally speaking, how they spend their own money. Uh, I just I disagree with it. I don't think people should do it. But there's a difference between what I personally think and where I think the government should be involved. And clearly, when this is happening to children, that in nothing else we would say they have the ability to consent to. It is life-altering. It is irreversible. I think government should step in and say, no, you can't do this. If you're an adult, you want to spend your own money, I disagree with you, but it's not my place to tell you you can't.
So I have a bit of a follow up to that. I know that your position is kind of aligned with a lot of other Republicans positions that if you're an adult, you can do what you want. Does that apply to maybe Medicaid payments for gender affirming health care or maybe for people who are in correction facilities? Well, I th- it, what I said was, if you want to spend your money and do something to your body, uh, when you're requesting taxpayer dollars, that's different. Um, you're not just doing what you want for yourself. You're requiring other people not only to approve it, but to pay for it. And I don't agree with that. I, I think the reason she asked is that's part of the House bill, because I think it is that correct, Sarah? Yes. Yeah. Oh. So, th- so so this was actually this is not a hypothetical. There's a, par- there's a part in the House bill that says that the, that the Department of Corrections will not pay for adults to do gender affirming care. So I think that's well, what yeah, Sarah I had. agree with that. If you want to do it with your own money. In you know your family room, that's that's your call. Um, just don't make me pay for it. Don't do it to a child, and make me say that it's a great and wonderful thing. So you've mentioned that you know you don't like the Senate grandfather clause or the sunset. No, know, they president. don't make sense. They're logically inconsistent. So Senate President Pro Tem Caleb Browden said yesterday, while nothing is quote unquote dead until it's dead, he would really prefer the House pass the Senate version rather than the Senate go through that debate again with the House bills. Could it be possible that nothing passes on this issue or that the House just has to accept the Senate version? I think it's very typical that that nothing happens because the Senate refuses to do what's necessary. But that's not right. And we should hold elected officials accountable. What do you make from the argument from some critics of this bill, that it's a contradiction to GOP rhetoric that parents should have domain on what happens to their children. I'm sure you've heard that. I think you deserve a chance to respond to that. Well, um, I, I think that there there are always restrictions to to that. We don't want to say that parents can. It's your child. You can murder your child. I think. Republicans have consistently said that we don't believe in that. We don't think that if you're a a crazy parent, you should be able to chop your child's arm off. We don't think you should be able to beat your child. That's child abuse. Um, There are limitations, and we need to protect children. Do we generally want parents in charge? Yes. But when parents are doing things that put their children in imminent risk of major harm, there are times when government should be able to step in and say, wait a minute, we need to protect this child. What is to stop Republicans from deciding some other form of child-based health care? So just let's say psychiatric services, like, like giving a child antidepressants or some medicine for ADHD. What's to stop them from saying, that's inappropriate, I want to ban that next? In other words, is this a slippery slope that could lead to bans on other well, treatment I mean, for I kids? I think the science is very different. I think it's, it's been a long-term thing. And, of course, uh, it's only with gender dysphoria when we're telling people that they should refuse reality, whereas I think appropriate psychiatric care is helping people to come terms with reality. What do you mean by that? Refuse reality? Because I mean, well, some people, people who have gender. Say, I'm not a boy or I'm not a girl. When, well, yes, you are. Well, they would say that they were a boy born in a girl's body. Well, they could say that, but the science shows they're not true. To, to change topics a little, would you be in favor of adding sexual orientation and gender identity to the state's non-discrimination statutes? No. Can you explain why? why? I don't think we have anything else that is not an immutable characteristic of people. Where you were born, the color of your skin are not things you change. How do you add sexual preference if your sexual preference can change at a whim? 
What, what, what do you don't mean? Don't we by have that? people that are fluid with regard to? I mean, it just it doesn't make sense. I don't need to know your sexual preference. How would I even know? I, I don't want to know your sexual preference. Uh-huh. But looking at you, I can generally see the color of your skin. Whether whatever, and I'm not trying to make fun of you, Jason, when I say this. You're, but you're whatever, more than welcome to make fun no, of me. I don't That's wanna, okay. I don't want to be impolite, but I don't want to know your sexual preference. It's none okay. of my business. Uh, I, I don't, don't know why so many people on... The left thinks it's think it's my business what their sexual preference is. Leave me out of that. I, I think that the reason that it wants to be at, want some people want it to be added to the state's human rights statutes is if if there's a situation where somebody is fired because they're gay or lesbian or transgender or bisexual. Are and we going to protect people that are fired because they're conservative? I mean, is that an immutable characteristic too? They're both not immutable. What does immutable mean? By the immutable way, immutable means it's unchangeable. I think that's the reason why they want that in there, because they they want some sort of legal recourse for that, basically. It, Are you, look, where do you stop then? Where, where, do we, where do you stop? Is it legal to fire someone for being a heterosexual? I mean, yeah. Now, oh, now, well, I, think, now so I think it is because you can't— because equally? Because sexual orientation and gender identity aren't part of the, the human rights statute. That's the point. Like you, you, you could Look, you could fire somebody for being heterosexual I, right now. I just I, I I don't see the need to include that. Uh, I, why? I, maybe this is the, why do people want to tell me what their sexual orientation is? Not the saying that everybody does, but I don't as as an employer, as an employee, I don't care. Why should that be a part of company information? Well, I think the situation in theory is if maybe people are talking about what they did over the weekend, a water cooler chat, and someone mentions, you know, a, a male employee says, me and my husband went to a winery and we had a really good time, and then they're immediately fired for that, that could be seen as firing because of sexual orientation. I just, I think, I, I think you open up a real can out. of worms. Where does it stop? Um, what... Where do you think that this issue goes? Um, okay, let's go back to the transgender uh, bills. Where do you think that this issue goes from here? Do you think that the legislature can come up with some sort of solution for this? Um, I'd say it's probably 50-50 mm-hmm. um, because I think there really is uh, – I think the House version is logically consistent where if, if it's the wrong thing to do to kids, it, we shouldn't have a, a sunset on it. Um, I don't know whether the Senate is really willing to do the work necessary to do what they ought to do. So um, we've got four weeks. It'll be interesting to see. I think we're going to see uh, 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 the rule will probably will have be a lawsuit against it. So we're, we're going to be talking about this for quite a while. We'll be right back after this quick break with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. 
And we're back on Politically Speaking with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. He is a Republican statewide official, and we have a lot more issues besides what we just talked about in the first half of the show to discuss with you. Another thing that is within your office's purview is um, elections. Yep. There is a bipartisan talk about the presidential primary coming back. You talked about this on the last episode of Politically Speaking, but I want you to kind of give your take on what should happen with this issue. We should either have a caucus or have a primary election. We should not have a primary election where we tell people to vote, but their votes don't matter, and then we have a caucus. Uh, So what I'm asking the legislature to do is if they want to go to a primary, which I tend to think is better, then let's have a primary where the primary votes determine who the delegates are, the candidates provide a slate of candidates. It's just it's disingenuous. It's wrong to hold an election where people's votes don't matter. Would you be okay with a clause requiring Democrats and Republicans to adhere to the results of the primary? In other words, let's just say Republicans vote for Donald Trump 70-30 and they would have the the delegates would have to vote for Donald Trump at the convention. Would you be okay? Would that be like a compromise here, or, or can you even do that? Really, what what you could do is, and it is done in other states where the candidate let's let's say for easy math purposes, Missouri has ten delegates. Mm-hmm. Each candidate gives a list of ten people. If the candidate gets sixty percent of the delegates, you just take the first six names off their list. Those are the delegates. Easy peasy, it's solved. Do you? It was interesting that both parties testified in favor of this. You don't see the two parties agree on much. It does seem like that there might be some momentum to. to I do think this. there might be. Um, they want to have a primary because then they charge filing fees, and then they take that money. Um, I've always said if you're going to charge filing fees for an election that the state pays for, the money ought to go to the state to pay for the election. But that doesn't get me a whole lot of happy smiles from party people. You've mentioned in interviews that overhauling education will be a major focus yes. of your potential of your gubernatorial administration. At this time, the legislature is considering an open enrollment plan allowing kids to go to different school districts and where they live. What are your thoughts on this bill? Um, I think it's pretty weak. Uh, I, I, I believe in local control. I really do, unless local control fails for some reason, like we've seen in the city of St. Louis with the prosecutor. Um, but the best local control when it comes to education is parents parent or the guardian controlling where a child goes to school, controlling where that money goes, making sure that their, their child is, is being well taught. And it's, it's an economic thing also. Right now, I think the state pays, what, about t- maybe $12,000 is the average cost per student. I send my oldest son to the public high school. I send my three youngest kids to private school in Jefferson City. It costs me about $5,5300 a piece for those three kids. We could give every parent in this state the same opportunity to control their kids' education that I have. We should do it. It's the right thing to do. So why do you say that the, this, this bill, open room bill, is weak? Because it doesn't go that far. It doesn't put parents in charge. Look, I had great administrators, great principals. I was with some yesterday as I was talking to kids uh, down in Jefferson County about citizenship and governance and, and Missouri history. But parents ought to be in charge. And until we, we put that money in the parents' hands, almost like an HSA, and until we reduce the control that DESE has over schools, we really won't be able to have education 
that's tailored to students. Just about everything we do these days, we want to tailor the experience to the individual. It's kind of that old, what is it, uh, Burger King, have it your way. Mm -hmm. We need to quit treating kids like they're widgets, like every five-year-old is the same, every seven-year-old is identical, and start provisioning education in ways that work for those kids. We're spending more on education than we ever have, and yet our test scores have gone off a cliff. Do you think that it's weak because schools could potentially opt out of participating in the open enrollment process? And, and that, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but that does seem to be where the bill is at, correct? Uh, the schools can opt yeah, out. Can, Sorry. Yeah, they don't have to accept students. They can't stop kids from leaving if other schools do, but they don't have to accept students, yeah. Uh, schools can opt out. It, it doesn't restrain DESE. It doesn't reduce DESE. You know, DESE's not supposed to be controlling curriculum, yet they do by how they test and their accreditation process. But the ultimate thing is, no matter how much you like your principal, your superintendent, your school administrators, parents know best. And unless we're putting parents in charge, now, yes, if there's a parent that's committed some grievous crime abusing their child, there are outliers. But generally speaking, unless we're putting parents in charge, we're doing the wrong thing. Representative Maggie Nurnburn told us last week that open enrollment could lead to mass segregation and end up crippling school districts that are already struggling. And I think we have a clip about that. We do. What happens when all of that money follows the student? What happens to the rest of the kids that are left in that district? And that continues to be my concern about this, is that the only families that are going to be able to, to navigate this additional level of bureaucracy are going to be those that already have the resources and the means to move their kids or send their kids to private schools if they wish. And so the, those who are going to be most adversely affected by this are those who already are struggling. Well, unfortunately, she's, that argument. she's completely incorrect. Uh, the idea here is to give every parent the means to have choice. Right now, rich people can choose. It's the people that don't have the money that can't make that choice. We want to give them that choice. We want to spur the creation of schools that are more tailored to the needs that parents and kids have. Um, the portion of that 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 I would say is this is just the first step. Mm -hmm. Not every parent will take advantage of, of, of choice and actually moving their kids to a school that works for them. If, if we have 100 kids for simplistic numbers, maybe 20 to 25 kids use that. This is the first step. But then we have a smaller group of 75 kids. We say, how do we help the next 20 or 30 of those kids to make sure they're in the right situation? Then we come back to 50 kids and say, how do we help? And we peel it like an onion. I'm sick and tired of saying that if we can't help every kid put them in the perfect position immediately, we won't help anybody. We've got to start making steps so that we can help everybody. So if I heard you correctly... Are you in favor of setting up what is basically equivalent to a voucher and giving that money to a, a, a parents and then allowing them to spend that money at a public or private school? I look at it like HSAs, so I think it's similar to vouchers. The idea is, by HSAs, I mean health savings accounts. This money is put into account. It can be used on these things. This money would be in health savings account. It can be used for tuition. It can be used for textbooks. Mm -hmm. It can be used for tutoring. Yeah, let's let parents who know their kids best figure out how best to help their kids. And, and you know, you know, from talking with me, I have kids with IEPs. Yes. So how would this work for kids with pretty significant disabilities? And it may cost tens of thousands of dollars to potentially 
educate them at a private school. Like, for example, there's a school called Miriam in St. Louis County, but they only have a certain amount of slots, and it's very expensive. Right. And I don't think you that, that from a practical standpoint – what you just mentioned would be you wouldn't be able to put everybody in that school for a lot of reasons. Well, well, as I said, I don't think everybody takes advantage of this. I think there are other kids that say, you know, that that isn't the solution for us. But what that does is that get rid gets rid of twenty to thirty percent of the kids. Not gets rid of them, gets them into a good situation, and then gives you a smaller problem that you can more focus on the needs of the children that are left. We already have a system where certain kids we spend X amount of dollars for and other children we spend substantially more because we want to provide for them. Uh, There's nothing that prohibits us from doing that in this system. Moving on to a different topic. Again, I feel like that's kind (laughs) of my gig this time. Uh, The House has passed legislation that would cut income and corporate taxes. What is your general philosophy on that sort of proposal? Um, We have way too much money that's being collected in taxes and fees by the state government. Uh, Hardworking, normal families are are stretching their their paychecks, trying to find a way to afford the goods and services they need, filling up at the pump, buying groceries, being able to take some sort of vacation or weekend with their kids. And our government just keeps taking more and more money. We passed the largest tax increase in the history of the state a couple of years back with our gas tax. We had a $2 billion surplus at the time. Now I think our surplus is around $5 billion or $6 billion. It's time we give back money to the people, quit taking so much, focus on what government really has to do. People make better decisions with their money than the government does. Does anybody really want to say they think the government does a better job of efficiently spending tax dollars than mom or dad will? Would you want to get rid of the income tax entirely and replace it with a larger sales tax? You know, there's been discussion about that. Um, I don't think we're at a point where we need to make that decision. I think right now it's clear that we're bringing in more money than we need to and that we need to reduce the scope of government. Our government doesn't have a problem getting enough revenue. We have a revenue allocation problem. We're not spending the money well, and we're not spending it in efficient ways. So right now, I'm just across the board. We need to be reducing the money that we're taking from the people. As we reduce that, we will have to make decisions about what are the best ways to get money. And I think there's a lot of evidence that would suggest Uh, putting a tax on labor is a bad thing to do. We want to look more toward fees uh, based on taxing people's productivity, but we're not even close to that discussion because we're collecting way more than we need. In a similar vein, you know, the Senate has passed legislation that eliminates the local sales tax on firearms, but also on uh, ammunition, uh, uh, feminine hygiene products, diapers. There's also the floating of maybe eliminating food sales tax. Is that something you would be in favor of? You know, I, I am a how do we have the largest net tax burden or so how do we have the smallest net tax burden on the people we can? I tend to be a guy that follows the KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. And I don't like having carve outs. I like to just say we're going to have as everything is covered by this, but we're going to make the rate as low as possible. So it's simple. Missouri has an outrageous number of taxing districts. It makes it difficult for commerce. It makes it big, 
difficult for businesses. Um, the compliance with it is expensive. Uh, we're, we're losing money because of the disefficiency in the system. I would rather just say, how low can we go and cover everything and make it as de minimis as possible? So it seems to me from that answer, you're not a huge fan of that bill. Is that fair to say? Look, I, I'll take the tax cut if I can get it. So it's better than nothing. But I'd much rather just say we're going to lower the sales tax on everything. I want to talk about foreign ownership of farmland. That's another issue that you've been involved you with. You commie. What? <laughs> I'm just kidding. You, you think I'm a communist? No, I'm just I'm joking, obviously, in that uh, I, I, Missouri. I, I, I'm kidding, too. <laughs> Look, it is it is it is stupid that we would allow countries that hate us, that want to destroy us, not only to buy agricultural land, but to buy any land in our state. Uh, clearly, that mistake was made about 10 years ago. I've been working with Representative Hafner. We have a bill that would forbid China, Russia, countries like that from buying any more uh, land in the state, not just agricultural land. Uh, I would uh, urge the Senate to get off their duffs and pass it. If they want to make it tighter and they've got the votes to pass it, I'm all for that. But the last thing I want is one more year to go by when we don't make progress on this problem. So speaking on the Senate, you know, at least uh, I know Senator Rusty Black, Senator Doug Beck, there's more kind of an agreement to just ban the sale, selling of foreign land, period, to go back well, to Well, that's not, not true. What they're talking about doing is saying that they'll go down to zero and then have pages and pages of exceptions. We saw in the state of Iowa that the politicians said we took it down to zero, but then they had five or six pages of legalese that were exemptions. I don't like that. Uh, I want to be clear. I want a normal, everyday, non-lawyer to be able to understand the law. So I, I don't want any of this social media, we did this when we really didn't do that. What I'm looking for is how do we reduce the uh, foreign ability to own our land? If you call it zero, but it's not really, I don't like that. I just okay. want to get down to where we really do it. And I'm afraid it's all for social media and they will have exemptions out the wazoo. Well, again, I'll, I'll be Senator Rusty Black, Republican Senator Rusty Black does not want any kind of list of exempt. I know you have the the list, the House bill has lists, but it does allow for the purchasing in Germany or Finland or other countries that aren't on that list. It's a reduction, but it isn't an outright ban. Right. Senator Black just wants a ban. So I'm curious if you would have more support for that or or the House bill. You know, I don't know uh, which I, I just want to get something done. I don't want one more year to pass without getting something done. And when they say they want to take it back to pre-2013, are they really saying they want to shut down Smithfield? Well, that was going to be my— I don't think they're really putting it back to pre-2013. Well, they're just saying that. That is— uh, that, you, That can of worms is open already. You can't— Well, but then they're not putting it back to pre-2013. Yeah, that was going to be my question. You kind of—you're you're a good segueer. I mean, that's the reason they passed that bill in 2013 was to allow Smithfield, or I don't know what it's called now, I think it's called something right. else. Yeah, and, and, yeah. But, but, but you're not, but regardless of whether this bill passes, I can't see Missouri government like mass confiscating Smithfield's land. Well, it's, so there's, there's a constitutional problem with that. Yeah, so this really isn't a ban, and it's just basically saying they can't buy any more. If it, it was zero, they would be confiscating Smithfield's land, right? It, 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 well, and also, depending on the language, a lot of them focus on agricultural land. 
Um, our bill has restrictions on agricultural land and bans on any land for certain countries. So, the, I, I, look, I just we need to make progress on this. This isn't something that the Secretary of State ought to be a part of. I became a part of it, though, because nobody would get anything done. Mm-hmm. And I, at least I'm happy that the fact that I've gotten involved, helped push the bill through the House, I think has made the Senate realize they have to do something. Now, you, weren't in the, you weren't in the state politics when they passed that bill in 2013, but that was the Republican bill. And they, right. the Republicans overrode a Democratic uh, governor. Do you think that Republicans made a mistake there? I mean, I, clearly you do, since you want to, like, change I, the I, law. I, right? I, do, I do not think that is where we should be. Uh, and I, I um, clearly uh, there was a, a misunderstanding of where China was when they passed that bill. <sighs> Thank you, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> we always appreciate your time and you're willing to engage uh, with us on the issues. Well, we I thank were, you for putting up with me. Oh, we will put up with you for a long time because uh, the governor's yeah, race is going to the governor's race is going to be fun, and we'll have you back to talk more about political stuff in the future. Politically speaking, is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri St. Louis. How could people follow you on Twitter, or Facebook, or Truth Social, or Friendster, or Napster, or, <laughs> or MySpace, or whatever, wherever you want to be found, Mr. Secretary? At Missouri SOS on Twitter, and uh, they can go to sos.mo.gov on the World Wide Web. We'll be back next time, and until then, so long. smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.